19. Oriad. The real height of the enthusiasm was reached when, after passing through 110th Street and northward along Lenox Avenue, the heroes arrived in the real black belt of Harlem. This was the home, sweet home for hundreds of them. The neighborhood they'd been born in and had grown up in and from 129th Street North the windows and roofs and fire escapes of the five and six story apartment houses were filled to overflowing with their nearest and dearest. The noise drowned the melody of loot. Europe's band. Flowers fell in showers from above. Men, women and children from the sidewalks overran the police and threw their arms about the paraders. There was a swirling maelstrom of dark humanity in the avenue. In the midst of all the racket there could be caught the personal salutations, Oh, honey, oh, Jim, oh, you Charlie, there's my boy, there's daddy, how soon you coming home, son? It took all the ability of scores of reserve policemen between 129th Street and 135th Street, where the uptown reviewing stand was, to pry those colored enthusiasts away from their soldiermen. There was one particular cry which was taken up for blocks along this district, Oh, oh. you wicked Henry Johnson, you wicked mon, and Henry the Bosch killer still bowed and grinned more widely than ever, if possible, looks like a funeral, Henry, them bullies, called one admirer, funeral for them Bush Germans, boy, sure a funeral for them Bushes, shouted Henry, the official reviewing party, after the parade had passed 60th Street, had hurried uptown and so had the police band, and so there were some doings as the old 15th breezed past 135th Street, but no one up there cared for governors or ex-governors or dignitaries, every eye was on the black buddies and every throat was opened wide for them, at 145th Street the halt was called, again there was a tremendous rush of men and women with outstretched arms, the military discipline had to prevail, and the soldiers were not allowed to break ranks, nor were the civilians save the quickest of them able to give the hugs and kisses they were overflowing with. As rapidly as possible the fighters were sent down into the subway station and loaded aboard trains which took them down to the 71st Regiment Armory at 34th Street and 4th Avenue. Here the galleries were filled with as many dusky citizens as could find places maybe 2.500 or 3.000 and so great was the crowd in the neighborhood that the police had to block off 34th Street almost to 5th Avenue on the west and 3rd on the east. As each company came up from the subway the friends and relatives were allowed to go through the lines, and, while the boys stood still in ranks, but at ease, their kinsfolk were allowed to take them in their arms and tell them really and truly in close-up fashion, what they thought about having them back, when the entire regiment was in the armory, the civilians in the gallery broke all bounds, they weren't going to stay up there while their heroes were down below on the drill floor, not they, they swarmed past the police and depot battalion and so jammed the floor that it was impossible for the tired black buddy even to sit down, most of the boys had to take their chicken dinner served by colored girls, and the chow, incidentally, from Delmonico's standing up with arms about them and kisses punctuating assaults upon the plates. Some chow, hey buddy, would be heard, pretty bon, you'd get the answer, I'd like to have mocha more of this chicken. There was noticeable a sprinkling of French words in the conversation of the old 15th, and, indeed, some of them spoke it fluently. Sam told me, one girl was heard to say, that he killed 19 of them Germans all his own self. But nobody saw him and so he didn't get that cross to gear. Mustering out commenced at Camp Upton the following day. Thus ended the service of the 369th. Their deeds are emblazoned on the roll of honor. 
sons and grandsons of slaves, welcomed by the plaudits of the second largest city in the world. What a record of progress in a trifle over half a century of freedom. What an augury of promise for the future of the colored race. And what an augury for the world freedom which they helped to create. And, overshadowing all else, what an object lesson it should be to our country at large, east, west, north, south, that, one touch of nature makes all men kin, that in her opinion and treatment of her faithful, loyal black citizens, niggardly, parsimonious, grudging and half-heartedly, how shameful she has been, how great has been her sin, forgetting, or uncaring, even as Pharaoh of old, that, God omnipotent life, and that, he is a just and a vengeful God, New York's welcome to her returning Negro boys was fairly typical of similar scenes all over the country. Chicago gave a tremendous ovation to the heroes of the old 8th Infantry. In Washington, Cleveland, and many other cities were great parades and receptions when theirs came home. In hundreds of smaller towns and hamlets the demonstrations were repeated in miniature. Chapter XXX. Reconstruction and the Negro by Julius Rosenwald. President Sears. Roba can see and trustee of TUSKGE Institute a plea for industrial opportunity for the Negro tribute to Negro AS soldier and civilian duty of whites flaunt out business leader and philanthropist sounds keynote. Although American sacrifices in the European war have been great, we find compensation for them in many directions. Not the least of these is the vastly increased number of opportunities the Reconstruction period will offer to many of our citizens. Today the United States is the leading nation of the world in virtually every line of activity. We have been thrust into a new world leadership by the war. It behooves us to make the most of our new opportunities. To equip ourselves creditably we must utilize the best there is in the manhood and womanhood of our nation, drawing upon the intellect and ability of every person who has either to give. Approximately 10% of our present population is colored. Every man. Woman and child of this 10% should be given the opportunity to utilize whatever ability he has in the struggle for the maintenance of world leadership which we now face. Just in so far as we refuse to give this part of our population an opportunity to lend its strength to helping us set a pace for the rest of the world, as best it can, so do we weaken the total strength of our nation. In other words, we can either give our colored population the right and the opportunity to do the best work of which it is capable and increase our efficiency, or we can deny them their rights and opportunities, as we have done in many instances, and decrease our efficiency proportionately. Of course, the question naturally arises as to how efficient the colored man and the colored woman are when given the opportunity to demonstrate their ability. No better answer can be found than that given by the splendid work of the majority of our colored people during the war on the firing line, in the camps behind the line, and in civil life our colored population has done well indeed. 400,000 Negroes offered their lives for their country. Many more made noble sacrifices in civilian life. It was my privilege not only to observe the work done in civil life by colored persons in this country during the war, but to visit colored troops in France during hostilities. There is no question that the Negro has given a splendid account of himself both as an exceptionally fearless fighting man and as a member of non-combatant troops. I made diligent effort to ascertain the manner in which the Negro troops conducted themselves behind the lines. It is much easier for a man to become lax in his conduct there than in actual fighting. Without exception every officer I questioned stated he could not ask for more obedient, willing, harder working or more patriotic troops than the Negro regiments had proven themselves to be. 
every account I have read regarding the engagement of colored men in fighting units and every case in which I had the opportunity to inquire personally regarding the bravery of colored troops has led me to believe our colored men were as good soldiers as could be found in either our own army or the armies of our allies, regardless of color. One needs only to scan the records of the War Department and the official reports of General Pershing to find positive proof of the valor, endurance and patriotism of the colored troops who battled for liberty and democracy for all the world. The entire nation notes with pride the splendid service of the 365th to the 372nd Infantry Units, inclusive. When historians tell the story of the sanguinary conflicts at Chateau 3, in the Forest of Argonne, in the Champagne Sector, below a wood and at Metz. The record will give reason to believe that the victories achieved on those memorable fields might have shown a different result had it not been for the remarkable staying and fighting abilities of the colored troops. French, English and American commanding officers unite in singing the praises of these gallant warriors and agree that in the entire Allied army no element contributed more signally than did they to the final downfall of the German military machine in proportion to their numbers. Not only did the combatant units of the colored troops win laurels across the sea, but the 301st Stevedore Regiment was cited for exceptionally efficient work, having broken all records by unloading and coaling the giant steamer, Leviathan, in 56 hours, competing successfully with the best Stevedore detachments on the western front of France, everywhere, behind the lines as well as when facing shot, shell and gas. The colored soldiers have given a most creditable account of themselves and are entitled to the product of their patriotism and loyalty. Those who remained at home during the war realize fully that the patriotic service rendered by colored persons in civil life, both in doing war work and in the purchase of liberty bonds and war savings stamps is to be commended. Surely after the many demonstrations of patriotism both on the battlefield and at home the white people of this country will be willing to accord the colored people a square deal by at least giving them a fair opportunity to earn a livelihood in accordance with their ability. We have been asking the impossible of the colored man and the colored woman. We have demanded that they be honest, self-respecting citizens, and at the same time we have forced them into surroundings which almost make this result impossible. In many places they are deprived of a fair opportunity to obtain education or amusement in a decent environment. Only the most menial positions are offered them. An educated girl particularly has practically no opportunity to earn a livelihood in the manner for which her education fits her. We whites of America must begin to realize that Booker T. Washington was right when he said it was impossible to hold a man in the gutter without staying there with him. Because, if you get up, he will get up. We do not want to remain in the gutter. We, therefore, must help the Negro to arise. If we are to obtain the best results from colored labor, unions should admit it to their membership. It is not the universal practice to admit colored persons to unions. The result, of course, is that even if a colored man has the opportunity to learn a trade, knowing he will not be permitted to enjoy the benefits of a union, he does not have the highest incentive for learning it. The North is especially neglectful in not providing openings for the colored men in trades. In the South it is not unusual to see a colored brute mason working alongside a white brute mason. But in the North the best a colored man can hope for on a building job now is a position as a hog carrier or mortar mixer. When the alien arrives in this country, he is given opportunity for virtually every kind of employment. But the colored man who is born in the United States, and, therefore, should share in its opportunities is not given as fair a chance as the alien worker. Naturally, 
we cannot hope that these conditions will be remedied in a day or a month nor can the colored man expect that the millennium will come to him through the action of white people alone. He can improve his chances of securing greater rights and opportunities in the United States, if he will make the most of the limited opportunities now afforded him. He who does the best he can with the tools he has at hand is bound in time to demand by his good work better tools for the performance of more important and profitable duties. The conviction is general that, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. The late Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, who was a good friend of the black man as well as the white, struck the right note in his introduction to the biography of Booker T. Washington when he said, If there is any lesson more essential than any other for this country to learn, it is the lesson that the enjoyment of rights should be made conditional upon the performance of duty. There exist certain rights which every colored man and woman may enjoy regardless of laws and prejudice. For instance, nothing can prevent a colored person from practicing industry, honesty, saving and decency, if he or she desires to practice them. The helpfulness of the colored race to the government need not be confined to fighting in the army nor to service in the manifold domestic callings. It is the duty of the colored citizens, as it is their right to have a part in the substantial development of the nation and to assist in financing its operations for war or peace. The colored people, as a rule, are industrious and thrifty and have come to appreciate their importance as a factor in the economic and financial world, as indicated by their prosperous business enterprises, their large holdings in real estate, their management of banks, and their scrupulous handling of the millions of deposits entrusted to their care. This capital, saved through sacrifice, has been placed in a most generous manner at the disposal of the government throughout its period of need, and the list of corporations, fraternities and individuals who have aided in bringing success to American arms by the purchase of liberty bonds and war savings stamps and by contributions to other war relief agencies, is indeed a long one. Opportunities of the colored people to make safe investment of their savings never were so great as they are today. The financial program the government has entered upon and is continuing to carry out to meet the expense of the war gives a chance to save in sums as small as 25 cents and makes an investment upon which return of both principal and interest is absolutely guaranteed. Too often colored people have entrusted their savings to wholly irresponsible persons, lost them through the dishonesty of these persons, and in discouragement abandoned all attempts at saving. Today, however, There is no excuse for any man not saving a certain amount of his earnings no matter how small it may be. It is a poor person, indeed, who cannot invest 25 cents at stated intervals in a thrift stamp. Many are able also to buy small liberty bonds. It is a duty and a privilege for colored persons to help the government finance the war, which was for both whites and blacks. It is the particular duty of white persons, in cooperation with the most influential members of their own race to explain these government financial plans to the colored men and women that they may make safe investments, acquire a competence, and thus become better citizens. It is my belief that the Negro soldier returning from France will be a better citizen than when he left. He will be benefited mentally and physically by his military training and experience. He will have a broader vision. He will appreciate American citizenship. He will know, I believe, that freedom, for which he risked his life and all, is not license. He will find his brothers at home who did not go overseas better for their war sacrifices. Both the soldier and the civilian have proved their devoted loyalty. Justice demands that they now be rewarded with an equal chance with the white man to climb as high in the industrial and professional world as their individual capacity warrants. Illustration, 
Homecoming Heroes of 8th Illinois 370th Infantry, Famous Negro Fighters Marching in Michigan Boulevard, Chicago Chapter XXXI, The Other Fellows Burden, An Emancipation Day Appeal for Justice, by W. Allison Sweeney, Publishers Note, at our request, Mr. Sweeney consented to the reproduction of this poem, which would be accompanying letter from the late Dr. Booker T. Washington, and the comment by the Chicago Daily News appeared in that newspaper just prior to New Year's Day, 1914. We regard it as a powerful argument, affecting the Negro's past condition and his interests. President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation September 22, 1862. It went into effect at the beginning of January, 1863. New Year's Day has thus become Emancipation Day to the colored people of the United States and to all members of the white race who realize the great significance of Lincoln's act of striking off the shackles of an enslaved race. Services on that day combine honor to Lincoln with appeals to the people of Lincoln's nation to grant justice to the Negro. A remarkable appeal of this sort is embodied in the poem here presented. W. Allison Sweeney, author of The Other Fellow's Burden, is well known among his people as writer editor and lecturer, his poem, which sketches with powerful strokes the lamentable history of the colored race in America and tells of their worthy achievements in the face of discouragements, deserves a thoughtful reading by all persons. Of this poem and its author Dr. Booker T. Washington writes as follows, T.U.S.K.G.A. Institute, Ayla, December 24, 1913, to the editor of the Chicago Daily News, I have read with sincere interest and appreciation W. Allison Sweeney's poem, the other fellow's burden. All through Mr. Sweeney's poem there is an invitation put in rather a delicate and persuasive way. But nevertheless it is there, for the white man to put himself in the Negro's place and then to lay his hand upon his heart and ask how he would like for the other fellow to treat him. If every man who reads this poem will try sincerely to answer this question I believe that Mr. Sweeney's poem will go a long way toward bringing about better and more helpful conditions. Mr. Sweeney Island of course a member of the Negro race and writes from what might be called the inside. He knows of Negro aspirations, of Negro strivings and of Negro accomplishments. He has had an experience of many years as writer and lecturer for and to Negroes and he knows probably as well as anyone wherein the Negro feels that the shoe is made to pinch. The poem, it seems to me, possesses intrinsic merit and I feel quite sure that Mr. Sweeney's appeal to the great American people, for fair play will not fall upon deaf ears. Booker T. Washington, the white man's burden, has been told the world, but what of the other fellows that lions whelp? Lest you forget, may he not lisp his, not in arrogance, not in resentment, but that truth may stand for square, this then, is the other fellow's burden, brought into existence through the enforced connivance of a helpless motherhood misused through generations America's darkest sin, their courses through his veins in calm insistence incriminating irony of the secrecy of blighting lust the best and the vilest blood of the South's variegated strain, her statesmen and her loafers, her chivalry and her ruffians, thus bred, his impulses twisted at the starting point by brutality and sensuous savagery, should he be crucified, is it a cause for wonder if beneath the skin of many hues black, brown, yellow, white flows the sullen flood of resentment for prenatal wrong and forced humility, should it be a wonder that the muddy life current eddying through his arteries, crossed with the good and the bad, poisoned with conflicting emotions, proclaims at times, through no fault of his, that for a surety the sins of fathers become the heritage of sons even to the fourth generation, or that murdered chastity, that ravished motherhood so pitiful, so helpless, 
before the white hot, lust fever of the master has borne its sheer fruit, you mutter, there should be no wonder, well, somehow, sir Caucasian, perhaps southern gentleman, I marked a, whelp, am moved to prize that muttered admission, but listen, please, the wonder is the greater one that from Lexington to San Juan Hill disloyalty never smirched his garments, nor civic wrangle nor revolutionary volatile unmarked him its follower, eh, striker, yes, but he struck the insurgent and raised the flag, an ingrate, treacherous, a violator, when oh, spectacle that moved the world, for five bloody years of fratricidal strife red days when brothers ward he fed the babe, shielded the mother, guarded the doorsill of a million southern homes, penniless when freedom came, most true, but his accumulations of fifty years could finance a group of principalities, homeless, yes, but the cabin and the hut of Lincoln's day uncover at that name, our memories, the mansion of today, dowered with culture and refinement, sweetened by clean lives, is a fact, and lettered, yes, but the alumni of his schools, triumphant over the handicap of previous condition, are to be found the world over in every assemblage inspired by the democracy of letters, in the casting up what appears, the progeny of lust and helplessness, he inherited a mottled soul, damned spots, that biased the looker on, clove to freeman, turned loose in the land credulous, without experience, he often stumbled, the way being strange, sometimes fell, mocked, smeared at from every angle, spurned, hindered in every section, north, south, east, west, refused the most primitive rights, his slightest mistakes made mountains of, hunted, burned, hanged, the death rattle in his throat drowned by shouts and laughter and think of it, the glee of little children, still he pressed on, wrought, sold, reaped, builded, his smile ever ready, his perplexed soul lighted with the radiance of an unquenchable optimism, God's presence visualized, he has risen, step by step, to the majesty of the home builder, full citizen, student, teacher, and wavering patriot, this of the other fellow, what of you, his judges and his patrons, if it has been your want in your treatment of him not to reflect, or to stand by an idling concern while, panning on his belly, ambushed by booted ruffianism, he lapped in sublime resignation the bitter waters of unreasoning intolerance, has not the hour of his deliverance, of your escape from your other selves, struck, if you have erred, will you refuse to know it, has not the time arrived to discriminate between those who lower those who raise him, you are shamed by your abortions, your moral half-growths who flee God's eye and stain his green earth, but you are not judged by yours, should he be judged by his, in his special case if so, why, is manhood a myth, womanhood a toy, integrity unbelievable, honor a chimera, should not his boys and girls, mastering the curriculum of the schools, pricked on to attainment by the lure of honorable achievement, be given bread and not a stone when seeking employment in the labor mart, at the factory gate or the office door, broadened by the spirit of the golden rule, will you not grant these children of Hagar an even break, is the day not here, oh judges, when the other fellow may be measured in fairness, just fairness, it is written men may rise, on their dead selves to higher things, but can it be that this clear note of cheer to some men and smitten races was meant for all save him, chance an immortal, he preth best who loveth best all things both great and small, for the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all, Chapter XXXII, an IDRPOA lady island, held by distinguished thinkers and writers, that the Negro soldier should be given a chance for promotion as well as a chance to die why white officers over Negro soldiers, 
ever since the conclusion of the conflict of 61-65, in which Negro troops numbered by thousands, took an active part upon behalf of the Union, there has been a growing and insistent wonder in the minds of many, why, given a chance to die in the military service of the nation, they should not also at the same time be given a chance for promotion. Subsequent affairs engaged in by the government requiring the intervention of its military arm, the Spanish-American War, the Philippines investiture incident thereto, the Mexican disagreement, the whole crowned by the stupendous World War, its frightful devastation and in yet fresh to our sight, still filling our ears, as it will for years, in all of which they have contributed their share of loyalty and blood of lives, have but added to, strengthened the wonder mentioned. Up to the beginning of the European muddle it was discussed if at all, not so much as a condition demanding and censored condemnation, as one to continue to be patient with, trusting due time and in a way sense of fair play upon the part of the nation at large to note the custom complained of, and banish the irritation by abolishing the cause. However, there has not been lacking those who have spoken out, who have raised their voices in protest against what they deemed an injustice to the loyal, fighting men, of their race and so feeling, had not hesitated to make their plea to those above empowered to listen, regardless of the mood in which they did so, as long ago as the summer of 1915, or to be exact, August 26th of that year, Capt. R.P. Roots of Seattle, Washington, addressed a letter to the Han, Lindley and Garrison at Washington, at the time Secretary of War, directing his attention to the discrepancy of assignment complained of, accompanied with certain suggestions, having to do with a condition that the government must eventually face, that will not down, and must sooner or later be abrogated. Captain Root's communication to the Secretary of War, also one addressed to the Han, Joseph Tumulty, Private Secretary to President Wilson, follows, Seattle, Wash, August 26, 1915, Han, Lindley and Garrison, Secretary of War, Dear Sir, as an ex-officer of the Spanish-American War, Having served as captain of company E of the 8th Illinois Volunteers, I am taking the liberty to ask that, if you should recommend any increase in the army you give the Negro a chance in the manner, and for reasons I shall further explain, you will notice by my service with the 8th Illinois that I am a colored man, and as such am offering these suggestions, which, in the main, are just, if the increase is sufficient, we should have, two coast artillery companies. One regiment of field artillery in these branches we are not represented at all. One regiment of cavalry, the above to be embodied in the regular army and to be officered as you think fit. But my main object is, three regiments of infantry officered from colonel down with colored men. I should not have these infantry regiments of the regular service for the reason that to appoint officers to the rank of colonel, majors, etc. would not be fair to the regular service officers, and would interfere with the promotion of the same but I would have them rank as volunteers, give them the name of, in use, for in-service regiments, or any other name that you choose, my further reasons are as to officering these regiments, that there would be many misfits in such organizations and I would leave it so that you or the president could remove them without prejudice from the service, but to fill by other colored men the vacancies that might occur, I should officer these regiments with Spanish war veterans, non-commissioned officers of the retired and regulars, but should appoint all to deal lieutenants from the schools of the country giving military training. The to deal lieutenants upon passing the regular army examination could be placed in the eligible list of the regular army, but not until at least two years service with these regiments. You could set a time limit on these regiments if you so desire. 
say ten or twelve years duration, either mustered out or in the regular service. Now Mr. Secretary, I have striven to meet any objections which might be made by the army on account of social prejudice, etc. With this thought I should send these regiments to some foreign post to serve where there are dark races, to the Philippines, Mexico, or Haiti. The object lesson would be marked politically, both at home and abroad. The 48th and 49th regiments organized in 1899 and sent to Philippines were unsatisfactory because of there being three social lines of separation in those organizations. The field and staff of these regiments were white, and the line officers were colored. In a social way the line officers were entirely ignored, and even officially were treated very little better than enlisted men or with.